Welcome back to this week's episode of Fly on the Wall, and happy spring break. I'm Alec. I'm Aida. And this week we have Dan Senna on the pod, but first, let's plug social media. Follow us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at Fly on the Wall Pod, and email us at flyonthewallpodcast at gmail.com. And subscribe to us on iTunes, SoundCloud, or wherever else you get your podcast, whatever app you're listening in right now, just click subscribe. It's super easy, and you'll uh, get us in your inbox every week. Just go ahead and click the button. All right, like I said, we have Dan Senna on the pod. Uh, as you may know, he's a fellow here at GU Politics this semester and has done seemingly everything on the campaign, campaign side of democratic politics. He, in the most recent cycle in 2018, was the executive director of the Democratic Congressional Campaign Committee, or the Washington Insight, as we talked to you call it, the D-Trip. He also formerly worked on uh, Senator Tom Udall's re-election campaign as campaign manager, winning a, a seat in a swing district in what was a pretty bad year for Democrats in 2014. Um, and he has worked as the he worked at the Democratic Governors Association. He's done a little bit of everything, but stop listening to us. We're going to bring him on the podcast to tell you more about his experience and his work uh, with Tom Udall and at the D Trip. So, without further ado, Dan Senna. Dan Senna, welcome to Fly on the Wall. We're excited to have you here. Um, we want to start a little bit back at the beginning of your career yeah. in, in New Mexico, um, which is where you grew up. And tell us about how you got involved uh, in your first campaign and what you were working on there. First of all, this is awesome. Thank you for thinking of me. This is this is just incredibly exciting. I can't tell you how impressive just being at Georgetown is and just how amazingly smart and hardworking all the students have been. So i um, done some really amazing things in my career, but I got to tell you, this is this is being part of a fellow here, being part of this Georgetown family is pretty amazing. So so um, I hope when my, my daughter is old enough, she can actually grow up to be a Hoya. So so anyway, so having said that, um, look, I grew up on a dirt road in New Mexico. Um, I'm from just outside of Santa Fe. And um, one of the things about New Mexico that's really interesting is we're last in everything you don't want to be last in, and we're first in everything you don't want to be first in. <laughs> and so, uh, to be perfectly honest with you, um, and, and so New Mexico is one of those places where the whole reason I got involved in politics is because I'm from a, a, a state that is literally dependent on every sort of federal, state, and local funding you could possibly think of. My best friend wears a gun, married his high school sweetheart, and he guards nuclear weapons for a living, and never finished college, and like that's just, and he is... A success story at home and um, they've got an amazing family but just come from a place where people don't get the to dream about coming to a place like like Georgetown so long story short um, I've known Tom Udall for a very very long time um, back in 1998 I was actually on his original campaign for, for federal office for Congress have known him for a very long time and in in 2013 um, um, I had had taken a little bit of time off, having just left the Democratic Governors Association, and uh, and um, which is taking a little time off. Politics can be a little rough on you, and um, and uh, he said to me at one point, "Hey, listen, I'm running for re-election, but if my campaign gets tough, can I call you?" And I said, "Sure, Senator." At the time, he was he was he was senator. At the time, he'd already been he was re-elected in 2008, first elected in 2008. Anyway, long story short, I, he says, "If my race becomes a real race." Would you consider coming home and, and being part of my, you know, running my, my re-election for me? And uh, married, and I just had my daughter, and um, my mom and dad were still living in Santa Fe at the time, so I sort of casually was like, sure, Senator, like, you're a Senator, whatever you need, yes, sir, um, because you you always work to keep your, your Senators happy. And uh, anyway, long story short, his race went from plus 20 to plus 10 to plus 7 to plus 4. And 2014 was just a bloodbath for the Democrats really across the country. And uh, loyalty is very important in this business and just in life. And um, in, in early 
uh, sort of early summer, late spring of, of 2014 at that point, he called and said, you know, I'm a little nervous that my race might be in a free, free fall. Will you, will you come home? So packed up the dogs, packed up my wife, packed up the kid, you know, and we headed back out West and, uh, you know, it was really, really amazing race. We, we, uh, we localized every single issue. We were one of the few races in the country where we started every sentence with New Mexico. Every mm-hmm. sentence started with New Mexico and ended with New Mexico. And we were running against this guy, a multi-billionaire, um, uh, like a very common down-to-earth billionaire, uh, not. Um, and um, we're one of the few people in the country to be able to win a tough-fought congressional uh, Senate race in 2014. Yeah, that's great. So... So, you know, you mentioned that 2014 became a really uh, a tight race, mm-hmm. and it, it was a brutal year for Democrats across the country. And elections are, elections are becoming increasingly nationalized. Mm-hmm. Um, even races for mayor, they're talking about the Affordable Care Act. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so what, was there, you know, pressure from the media to be nationalizing the race more? Or, you know, how did you, how did you keep that keep on message? So across the country, we are seeing people uh, beginning to bucket themselves. And even, look, you are more likely to live across the street from a Democrat if you are a Democrat now. And across the street from a Republican if you are a Republican now. It is the way the country is just sort of moving, um, uh, un- un- unfortunately. Um, hopefully after some, some 2020 elections, we can the, co- the country will calm down just a little bit and and um, sanity will regain itself. But um, I, I, I think one of the things about about paying attention to what is happening on the on the federal level is is issues just touch people in so many ways now, and with social media and the ability to communicate to voters so quickly, it, it's not only the fact that we're getting more partisan. Um, uh, just in sort of our day-to-day lives, it's the fact that the messaging and the information is so fast, and you know you can you can span the entire country in, on Twitter in a blink of an eye, and so just the sheer volume of information and how things are are being processed, information is being processed across the country is really helping contribute to people getting fallen into their buckets, but it's also contributing to people like not paying attention. It's just there's just too much information out in the system. So, so um, look, I I, I think. Um, I think especially in the post-Trump era, things have become very, 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 very partisan, even more so, and nationalized, and every issue has a national tie to it. Mm-hmm. For Tom, we didn't talk about healthcare. We talked about the local hospitals. We didn't talk about um, necessarily national security. We talked about veterans and how important the military was at home. We didn't, and, and we spent a ton of time talking about water. You know, New Mexico is one of these few places where what keeps New Mexico from becoming an Arizona or even a Colorado is the fact the state has absolutely no water. So believe it or not, it, it, it sort of similar to Nevada. Like if you can get water two places, it creates life. And so the third issue we actually spent a ton of time talking about was water. Well, it turns out like water's not a federal issue; it's an everybody issue. And so we worked very hard in that election cycle to really not talk about national health care, talk about local hospitals, to not talk about national security, to talk about local veterans and, and how you keep New Mexico safe. And then all in the backdrop of, of providing water to communities across the country, actually across New Mexico, especially rural communities. Awesome. So going back to the issues that were important in that um, cycle, how did you work with that in terms of messaging? What do you think was the turning point in the election that so, swinged it in your favor? Uh, yeah, no, it's a great question. And, and the race continued to close really even up to election day. I think there were a couple of very big things. First of all, um, candidates still matter. So for everybody out there, for looking at 2020, looking back at 2018, one of the big lessons we learned in 2018 
Is it something that is new? It's that you vote for something. You are voting for somebody. And and Senator Udall, Tom, has, has always done a very good job of keeping his roots in New Mexico, maintaining and staying New Mexican really throughout everything. Um, and, and so he just has this root at home that oftentimes senators don't have. If you sort of think about being a senator, you're sort of... You run every six years. You are one of fifty. You know, it's it is it is it, it it can become a political elite thing to be part of, and he has done a very very good job of doing that. The other thing that that we had that that was incredibly powerful is, as you know, campaigns or I'm sure you've seen tracking footage where you know you have a candidate saying something silly or you have a candidate running out of the DNC or away from Nancy Pelosi or you know out of the RNC or running out of a donor's office. Like there's all of these trackers that, that, that we people like me actually sick on um, on elected officials to to catch them saying things and in, in one particular case um, our opponent whose name was Alan way was at a Chamber of Commerce meeting and um, as I said New Mexico you're 50th and everything you don't want to be 50th and first you everything you don't want to be first in incredibly poor state incredibly incredibly poor state and um, there's this there's this federal minimum wage law that basically um, uh, it might be federal, it might be New Mexico, and I, I can't quite recall, but like if you are um, basically under a certain age or you bust tables for a living or you work in a restaurant, the federal minimum wage doesn't apply to you. Or it's like $2.12 or something like that, right? Um, a lot of the jobs actually many of us all start on, right? And so he's at this he's at this, 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 uh, this Chamber of Commerce event, and he says, so what if people are making 2 bucks an hour in New Mexico? So what? So what? <laughs> okay. So what? And he says it like three or four times. And he tries to drive this point home where it's like, so what if you're making this money? Making nothing. You know, so what if you're making peanuts? And what he was trying to do was obviously went over the folks in the building, in the room that he was talking to from the chamber. But it just was his distaste, his disdain for sort of people who make a couple bucks an hour in the poorest state in the union. Well, we got it on footage. We got it on tape. We didn't get it on 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 video but we got it on audio and so we then from there on laid out a series of ads and this one ad in particular was this single mom getting up at dawn um, like many moms and dads do in, in very poor states taking her, her her daughter at the time to to daycare and then like going to the grocery store and then like going to the salon where she worked and it was just sort of the course of her day and then what we basically did is we laid out all of these patterns of attack about people who make minimum wage. It turns out there's a lot of people who make minimum wage and really just drove a very stark economic contrast. And really as populist sort of whose side are you on argument, the race completely opened back up and we were able to win by 10. And so it was one of the few Congress, one of the Senate, few Senate races in the country that we were, we were able to, to actually defend a Democrat. That's campaign. awesome. Yeah, it was cool. And so I want to talk about your experience at the uh, D trip in a minute, but before yeah. we get there, so after the campaign, you didn't um, come back to the Hill with Senator Senator no. Udall, plenty of George no. Hunt students, you know, Inter on the Hill. I remember, I remember no. you saying at the Fellows, like, opening event this semester, and I'm paraphrasing here, that you worked on the Hill for about 20 minutes, and that yeah. was enough for you, or yeah, something well, to that good. effect. Well, look, look, there's, there's, there's a lot of ways to impact change in the world. There's a lot of ways to get involved in politics. For me, um, um, I like the fight. You know, one of the things that's unique about actually being on the political side is there's always a winner and there's always a loser. Well, that's good and bad. Um, but it's, it's nowhere near as, like, exciting and, and healthy for you as professional sports, but there's always a winner, there's always a loser, there's always a buzzer, there's always an end, you know, there there are no extra innings, you know, you either live or die based off of the way, based off of what happens on election day. There aren't really a lot of other professions that are like that, and so I love that part of it. 
there's also a lot of very important things that happen with people who are policy driven and who help write bills and who work for committees and who help fight the fight up, you know, once they are in office. It's amazing work. It's really important work. It's just not for me. I like the fight. <laughs> All right. So about the D-Trip. So in the 2018 cycle, you were the executive director of yeah. D-Trip, yeah. um, which basically means you're responsible for the fact that Democrats won back the House. So can you tell us a little bit about some of the differences between working at the D-Trip and on a campaign? Sure. Well, well thank you for saying that. First of all, I had I had the most amazing team at, at the DCCC, and, and, and Ben Ray Lujan, who was our chairman for both the 16 and the 18 cycle, um, really gave me enough rope to hang myself. But most important, um, we had some great Georgetown alumni, honestly, who were there uh, as, as part of it. So, so it was certainly not done alone, and these types of things aren't done alone. Um, however, one of the biggest challenges we had, or one of the biggest differences is, on a campaign, you know you have to win. Um, I was told every single day at the DCCC, you have to win. And and they, they, they both share that similar sort of vein that you are there to elect somebody. In this particular case, it was, you know, go save the Republic or we're all moving to Canada. Uh, <laughs> and so, so uh, um, you know, I think there are a lot of really historic special elections in, 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 in throughout our history. Um, but on the House side where the house mattered the most. You know, I think there's been a handful of them really throughout the last 200 years. And and I think this is one of them where, where just the stakes were, were just so amazing. I, I, I think some of the big differences, you know, it was really, really interesting. When we ran Tom's re-election, it was about being New Mexico and being centric. It wasn't necessarily about ideology. And I think there were more things in common with what we did in 2014 than there were different in 2018. We elected some amazing members of, of, of Congress. There's no ideology. There's no there's no common ideology amongst them. There is no you know they're they're all pro Medicare for all or they're also single payer. There is no that that's not the case. To be honest with you, we got a bunch of really really great veterans. We got a bunch of people who had just these amazing records of service who really understood what it meant to put their their country before their party. And we, for lack of a better term, went to war. And obviously the biggest difference is just the sheer size and scope of, of what we just did um, at the DCCC and on the House side. Um, but make no mistake, Nancy Pelosi and Ben Ray, every time I saw them said, you know, you have to win. You know you have to win. So so the pressure the pressure for both sides is pretty great. Yeah. So one of the key tasks for the D-Trip is figuring out which, uh, which districts to target yeah, with your resources. You and as a former uh, resident of Colorado 6th, I know that, you know, top 10 red to blue uh, yeah. quite well. Uh, so uh, tell us about... The process of that. How sure. do you how do you determine those districts? Well, let's use Colorado as an example because it's a perfect example. Super expensive media market, Denver. Um, uh, very very well educated district, but it's also got some great Hispanic populations to it, and then a real minority mix to it, right? So, now the interesting thing about Colorado Six, first of all, when you win back the house you gain all of this random knowledge about 80 congressional districts across the country that has no value outside of winning the house so so um so uh, uh so so bear with me as i can tell you about it but you know colorado's is really unique colorado six is this unique setup where you have the same number of democrats as you do republicans and basically the same number of independents so if all the democrats get the democrats and all the republicans get the republicans you literally fight over this tiny share of, of independent voters and that's a perfect example of where it's a very expensive media market. This is before we even talk about the candidate. You've got to fight for this sort of lion's share of independence, but you've got Hispanics and you've got this 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 very well-educated sort of subset as, of the electorate as well. Um, and, and so it becomes this very unique place to, to be able to go and win. We look at things like college education levels. We look at things like the number of sort of not, what the percent of the vote is non-white. 
what percent of the vote is non, you know, is is white non college educated? Has a Democrat ever won there in the past? So even before you have a candidate walk in the door, you have sort of this series of eighty districts across the country that you could go and fight in. One of the big things that we saw in all of the special elections leading up to the two thousand eighteen election, and these are elections for like state house, right, legislative races, is that if there was a Democratic DNA, meaning a Democrat had won there in the last 10 years, we won the special election. If there was no Democratic DNA, meaning a Democrat had not won there, we're talking about like going back to 2006, there was probably not a path to be able to do it. And so that led us down this road of just creating as big of a footprint as you could possibly make. I mean, we had 80-plus viable races across the country, really fueled by, by, by grassroots money. So, so when you start to look at college education levels, you know, past history, all of these things, then you get to the quality of the candidates. And I got to tell you all, if you're looking for internships or you're just looking for the leaders of the Democratic Party in the future, they are in this crop of 43 brand new people. 23 of them come from Trump districts. The majority of the seats we just won were in districts that Donald Trump won. You don't do that without stellar candidates. Big records of service, smart. Again, some really great Hoyas are actually in that mix. But um, um, uh, it it really comes down to not only sort of all the variables that go into the districts, demographics, history, all of those things, but also then obviously the, the candidate quality. So the first two years of the Trump administration gave you a lot of policy material to work with, trying to repeal the Affordable Care Act, passing tax law, not to mention proposals on immigration and other social issues. So how did you figure out what messaging was most effective around these issues? Well, so it's important to remember going into 2018, the fight that happened in 2017. And because sort of nothing, you know, everyone likes to remember the win, right? Everyone like, like, watched, like, everybody likes to watch the last play of the game when it's sort of the coin toss, right? Or the win. Um, But it's important to understand we basically set things in motion to win the house in 2017 the healthcare fight what pre-existing conditions everybody has a pre-existing condition whether it's because you are a woman or this is the way the republicans view it or because you have diabetes or because you have heart disease or because your father may have had some sort of genetic issue that you now carry with you which let's be honest we all carry things from our parents along the way right whether it's you know our, our facial hair or our hair or whatever have you we all carry things from our parents the insurance companies tried to make all of that pre-existing conditions. And every American in the country can relate with the idea of like getting broken up with because of a pre-existing condition from your health from your healthcare provider. It's ridiculous. The other piece that was was sort of underlying the, the healthcare fight is generally the economy in the United States has gotten better, but the peace of mind around people's own financial status has not. So while like you may see more minimum wage jobs, you may see all of sort of the economy on paper getting better, people have are very, very nervous about their own finances. And that's driven by the cost of healthcare and driven by the cost of prescription drugs. That combined with what is a, a very populist-based tax pr- plan that basically gave a whole bunch of money to the wealthy and didn't really do that much for middle class and lower caste families. Um, and people saw it immediately. You know, we were really nervous that like February or March of, of last year, when the new tax plan pack, when the new tax plan passed, um, or actually became real, once people saw it in their paychecks, like holy shit, like oh, were we in trouble? Um, we just really weren't sure. And so, uh, excuse my language. Um, <laughs> uh, uh, but it turns out, like convincing people they're actually getting a tax break is a really hard thing to do. And when the guy around the corner who you know is an Exxon exec buys a yacht, and you're still trying to figure out how to get ramen on the table, it's really obvious. So those are the two biggest things. That and that just like. What, just like the culture of corruption in D.C. is is, is permeating. Um, and voters are, are 
voters feel it across the country. Mm-hmm. So, as promised, the way we like to finish up here on Fly on the Wall, each lightning episode round. is the lightning Let's round. Let's do it. So we okay. got three questions for you. Three. Just first thing that comes to mind, uh, you can work one more election cycle for the rest of your life on a campaign or a committee like the D trip. Yeah. Let's go elect a president. Oh, you want to work on a presidential campaign? Well, uh, if I had one more to do. All right, all right. Had I not, if I didn't have two amazing children and an amazing wife, <laughs> yes. Oh my God, great segue into our second question. Um, how'd you meet your wife? Uh, it's great. I met her on Iowa. I, I take my wedding ring off, um, but it's it's been a day. So inside my <laughs> wedding ring, it says Iowa. It's life-changing. I met her on a presidential race in Iowa, and I carried around a map with me um, because this was 2008, so it was a little, like, you didn't quite have everything on your phone back then. <laughs> uh, and um, the map that I had bought at the... Um, at the uh, truck stop said Iowa it's life changing and we had all of our offices laid out on this map and I would drive around I was the national field director for this guy named Bill Richardson who ran for president my wife is Canadian and she had been there to basically observe the elections like what is going on and um, truth be told I actually knew within meeting her within minutes that there was something really really special about her and so we actually chose not to start dating in the middle of the campaign because campaigns um you get to know people really, really well because you spend 20 hours a day with them and you have a common goal and then that goal goes away and most of the time so does the relationship because like you're not doing the same thing anymore. And so I really didn't want that sort of a relationship with her um, but just recognized something very special about her right away and three or four months later she was in Toronto, I was in New Mexico, we met in Chicago and honestly we haven't been separated since. Anyway, the inside of my ring says Iowa, it's life-changing. Love that. Iowa's That's a awesome. Story. For all of you listening, you should go to Iowa. That's awesome. <laughs> Then, last thing, uh, on election night, describe the feeling in one phrase when you heard that you take the majority vote. Oh, man, I still remember. I will never, ever forget it. First of all, the way we all knew is my entire team at the DCCC was there. And one of the biggest challenges and one of the biggest differences that I should have mentioned earlier is that in 2014, um, we, we as a Democrat, we thought we could still win. At the end of 2016, we got crushed pretty bad, just our spirit. And the ghosts of Christmas past for lack of a better term, really haunted us throughout 2018. Could we actually do this? Could we actually win? And I really pushed my team to be bigger, to be bolder, and to just push through it and to really not see it, uh, not believe that we couldn't win. And on election night, um, when the 26th seat came in, um, I was surrounded by about 150 people who had been there from day one. We ordered three cases of champagne, and (laughs) we still watched, we still paid attention, and obviously, um, because of California and Washington and, and some other places, we didn't we didn't know the total number of seats we had won. Uh, but but um, I moved the twenty sixth seat. We had this board. There's nothing fancy about it. They were giant sticky sticky pads, sticky <laughs> notes um, with all the states on them, all the districts on them. And when we got to twenty six, we knew they couldn't catch us. Um, and um, and uh, it was just this amazing thing. And I looked at this guy named Steve Cisneros, who ironically was from New Mexico. Um, and I handed in my personal credit card and I said, I don't care where we get it, go buy three cases of champagne. <laughs> and then he came back and it was like champagne and cheap beer and all these other things. Uh, and of course we did our due diligence the rest of the night and we're very responsible. Um, but there was this like rager going on in, in, uh, in the other part of the office. So, Hey, you know, we changed, we, we made history. So, and then awesome. last thing, because you, you know, we talked about your fellow here this semester. Yeah. Um, you still have about half of it left to go, uh, spring break coming up this week. But then after that, uh, you still got a few more discussion groups. Tell us about uh, your discussion group topic, when it is, where students can find you, and most importantly, what kind of free food you bring. Yeah, so come, come hang out. We, are, we hang out on Mondays from 2 to 3.30. Um, look, we're still going to talk about Trump. We're going to talk about trolls. 
Not that Trump is a troll, but different things. We're going to talk about Twitter and trolls on Twitter. Um, we're going to talk. We're going to actually roll out this really. We're going to change up the syllabus a little bit, or syllabus, whatever you want to call it, the discussion group guide. We're going to bring a bunch of folks in who. Um, um, have been really impacted by Me Too in the political space, and so we're going to bring in some really cool folks, and then we're going to round it all out by making a bunch of predictions for 2020. So, but food, look, man, we roll with Bonchon, we roll with Kessel, uh, you know, soy, you know, I'm, I'm half Latino myself, so, like, we're going to bring in some sabor along the way, just some spicy food to end this thing out. Um, I sort of started off with a little Bonchon, then did um, some some treats, but um, we're going to add some queso and some some taquitos and some fun stuff along the way. I'm so, so excited. So please come, so please awesome. join us, and it's going to be amazing. Hey, Dan, thanks so much. Yeah, thanks for coming and joining us today. Thanks for listening to this week's episode of Fly on the Wall. That was Dan Senna. As we mentioned, he's a fellow here this semester. He still has discussion groups continuing after uh, spring break. They are Monday, 2 to 3.30 here in the GU Politics office. Swing by, he's talking about Trump and trolls, as he pointed out. Not the same thing. Um, And he has lots of great uh, free food. So swing by, the fellows' discussion groups are all great. Um, Dan's is Mondays at uh, 2. We're really excited to have him on the podcast. But before we let you go, don't forget to follow us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at flyonthewallpod and email us at flyonthewallpodcast at gmail.com. All right. Have a great spring break. We'll see you next week.